Hello, and welcome to Profiles, a program that introduces to WFIU listeners interesting people from Indiana, the United States, and the world. I'm Owen Johnson. Our guest on this occasion is journalist, author, and businesswoman Cheryl Wudun. Cheryl, welcome to Profiles. A delight to be here, Owen. You've been described as a third-generation Chinese-American. What does that mean to you? Oh, it really just means that my grandparents were the ones who came over from China. And when I first uh, learned about what it was like to be Chinese, when I was growing up, I had this vision that, you know, there's one kind of Chinese and you had to be Chinese or you weren't. Uh, And I remember arriving in China and all of a sudden discovering that there was the Chinese Chinese from China mainland. There were Chinese Americans. There were Chinese Filipinos. There were Chinese Hong Kong, Chinese Taiwanese. Lots of different types of Chinese people. So I'm a Chinese-American. What does that mean within the context of the United States? Basically just means that uh, I'm American of Chinese descent. Okay. Your education, your higher education starts at Cornell. How did you wind up going there? I was very interested in biology. And Cornell had one of the best biology departments. And I thought I would try a rural area because I was born and raised in New York City. And so there you have it. I think the the uh, tours they give to prospective students talk about the, the nice rural and remote qualities and the ability to slide down the hills at Cornell in the, in the wintertime. Yes, it's just as beautiful as Indiana University, but there are a lot of hills, as you just mentioned. <laughs> How did you get from biology to business or that kind of route? Because you you went for a master's in business administration. Yes. Actually, uh, yeah, I do have an MBA. I actually probably vacillated quite a number of times in my major. And though I started out in biology and took the whole, I actually was also interested in pre-med uh, and did that route, but ended up being a history major. Uh, so that history major sort of led me into journalism, but I did make a few stops along the way in banking. That that would be the next question. How does a history major get a job with Bankers Trust Company? Oh, yes. Well, you know, they actually were uh, interested in hiring a lot of uh, people who had majored in the humanities because a lot of what you do in banking is also working with people. And so uh, having a background in humanities was actually very attractive to them. Uh, Also, um, uh, because I had a background in science and, and math. What was it that made you decide then to go from banking to an MBA? Did you think you needed more if you were going to advance in that field? Absolutely. I think that that was a path that a lot of people were taking at the time is you go into banking for a few years and then go to get your MBA. Uh, And then I actually was interested in a little bit of politics. So I, I did some graduate work in politics. And then ended up in journalism sort of uh, by circumstance because my husband and I got married and he is a journalist, was a journalist at that time, and was posted in China of all places. And so, of course, China now we know of as this big rocking you know, economy. At the time, it was just a sleepy giant. And when we went there, there wasn't much to do by way of banking. So I ended up in journalism. Your first job in journalism was what, the South China Morning Post? A I guess you could say that, yes, in Hong Kong, yes. Was that before you met your husband or after you'd met him after while, I met while him. you were yes. waiting to, for the marriage? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's one way of putting it. He was uh, posted in Hong Kong and I was working at the South China Morning Post. And how did you wind up at that paper? 
I actually started off at Reuters in Hong Kong and then, you know, wanted to work at a newspaper. And the English language newspaper in Hong Kong is the South China Morning Post. It was a great training ground. I mean, I actually advised my sister to do the same. She did the same <laughs> uh, because it just really threw you into the nuts and bolts of journalism and also got you around Hong Kong. How did you meet your husband? Uh, we were introduced by a friend who probably had no idea what, <laughs> what how it would end up. Did you decide you were going to give up your previous career to kind of put the banking be- behind you? you well, know, no, it actually started because when I was in China, um, uh, as I mentioned, you know, there really wasn't uh, a very vibrant economy at the time. And I did try to go into banking. I actually met with the guy at Citibank. But the, Citibank did not even have a license, so there was really no business there. Uh, it was really just building up a relationship, and you know I wasn't going to learn that much there. So the other avenue was journalism, because I happened to have done that on the side as well. And uh, even that was hard. I mean, you know, anything in China at the time was not easy to start to embark on. So it took six months to even get a uh, accreditation as a journalist in China. A lot of wooing the right officials in the government to get the credentials, and finally, uh, probably a um, you know few weeks before the biggest pro democracy movement in China, I got my credentials. I was very lucky. So it was a husband and wife team, effectively. Yes, we were very lucky. In did that you regard. did you take advantage of that in in the way that you reported China? Um, I I don't really know. That we did. I'm not really sure. Um, But I think that it certainly helped because, you know, at that time, China was a very difficult place to live. I mean, it was a fascinating and challenging place, but very difficult. And so because, you know, we were able to sort of, you know, talk through some of our challenges, our ideas, our, our approaches, I think that probably helped a lot. There was a lot of, so to speak, synergy. Was there a greater sensitivity to perhaps women's issues? I don't think so. Um, you know, it was just a very interesting, challenging uh, topic. And, you know, certainly in China at that time, uh, everybody was interested in the pro-democracy movement and the student movement. And we were fascinated by what was going on and horrified by the the military crackdown that took place on Tiananmen Square on June, on June 4th. But although it was terrible to, to, to know that uh, several hundred people were killed in Tiananmen Square. We think probably between 500 to 800 people were killed. Uh, in the following year, as we traveled throughout the countryside, uh, we were going to the tiniest, you know, remotest rural areas. We were, you know, speaking to people in, in many of the different provinces. We discovered uh, something that was even more horrific, uh, which is that there were a lot of missing girls, baby girls, partly because uh, they were being aborted you know, with the increasing prevalence of the sonogram, or they were, you know, female incenticide was taking place in, you know, in, in certain areas. Uh, and we thought that that was an, an amazingly horrible story, and there had not even been one column inch written about it in the newspapers. So we're thinking, this is a story that has not even been touched. So that, for us, was a real awakening of a, of a new kind of story. And this, of course, for our listeners, is connected with the Chinese limitation of just one child per family. Uh, to some degree. I mean, you know, the seeds of what became Half the Sky, uh, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide, the book that came out in the fall, 
the seeds really were sown when we were in China.、Uh, we began to understand the challenges facing women、uh, in the developing world.、Uh, at first, we thought they were con- confined to China, but they really weren't. To some degree, it is a result of the one-child policy, but really, at the root of it, is just this preference for sons.、Uh, and you know, there were about 30 million missing baby girls in China. If you look at demographic trends, and this is what the research by demographers has shown.、Uh, and then we also discovered later on,、uh, years later, that this problem also、uh, was in other parts of Asia, particularly India. And South Korea and other parts of Asia as well. It's some people might find it a little bit surprising、uh, with the Tiananmen Square crackdown. Why wasn't there a crackdown on foreign correspondence? How was it that you were able to travel out into the countryside and around China? Certainly, in the rest of China, you know, when you weren't covering the、um, pro-democracy movement when it was over.、Uh, You know the other areas that people were very interested in were the economy. So a lot of it we were going、uh, to report on just what was going on with the economy, and you know you、uh, you just inevitably discover new things when you're when you're just roaming around the countryside. So we were covering a lot of different issues,、um, and one of them was the incipient economy, economic takeoff in China that、uh, you know people had no idea. Uh, that that was the beginning of this giant economic revolution. Did your background in business and banking、uh, sensitize you to those developing issues? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I actually really focused on the economic development in China, and、uh, you know, it's the rest is history. I mean, it's really、uh, been a remarkable rise. And the interesting thing、uh, by just Becoming so sensitive to the issues facing women in China,、uh, one of the most interesting angles and, and、um, dimensions that people don't really talk about is that、uh, when you look at how China's economic revolution started,、uh, you look at what the communists did. They basically educated everyone, including girls, and then they allowed a lot of these girls to work in factories. So that meant that these girls who were raised in vill- tiny little villages in the countryside were able to move to the county head and work in factories. So over the years,、um, they began、uh, producing the clothes, the shoes, the bags that we Americans all wear. The light apparel industry was the beginning of the export-led economic revolution in China. So you could argue that China's economic revolution was jump-started by women. Let's return a little bit to the Tiananmen Square situation. How does one go about reporting、um, a changing, dynamic, big story like that? Did you have sources that you worked regularly? Was it by observation? Was it by using? Um, Chinese informants.、Uh, how do you get your arms around a big story like that? You know, it's everything you said and more. There's no formula. China certainly、uh, is a place where it is important to have a network of contacts, and、uh, we really were there only six months before the movement really took off. People who had been there for several years had a very long network of contacts,、uh, but we just did what we could, and you know it's smart choices that you make in terms of what you think the story、uh, is, where you think it's going, and so we got very lucky, and I'd say that、uh, lucky in every facet in terms of 
just the people that we met, uh, the stories we chose to write about, and the stories we chose to pursue. And, uh, you know, so we're very lucky. Did being of Chinese ancestry help? I think it definitely did. I mean, it helped uh, in many ways. It also helped, though, you know, well, Nick, uh, being non-Chinese, it also helped in circumstances because there are times when it is better to be a foreigner. So we were able to really uh, sort of separation of powers and separations of influence and really use um, our strengths to our advantage. You won at least three awards that I know of for the Chinese reporting, the George Polk Award, the Overseas Press Club Award, and I suppose to most people the most recognized is the Pulitzer Prize. How did you react when you heard about these? Oh, we were just amazed, totally overjoyed because, you know, when you're in China reporting, I mean, your world is just the uh, Chinese world and we had no idea how our reporting was being received. We would, you know, file our stories, send it out, and then you're thinking about the next story the next day because, as you mentioned earlier, it was such an overwhelming event. There were so many things going on at the same time, so many different moving parts, and like, where do you go next? What do you do? How do you get the story? Um, All these things were going on in our mind that we really had no idea how they were being received as people were reading the New York Times the next day. Uh, So we were just really, really overjoyed and just so grateful. Were you aware of some feedback? I understand that um, some Chinese were listening to reports from Voice of America or or BBC in which your reports figured as part of the source material. We didn't really get that much um, feedback. Really, honestly, at that time, you know, doing reporting in China was so challenging that you just had to – you spent so much time focused on that. What I remember most is just you know, focusing on or where is the next story, trying to be plugged in enough so that you, you, know, you know, aren't blindsided by something that happens. And you know, if you hear reports, then how do you chase those reports to verify them? I mean, there were, there were so many uncertainties at that time. It's probably you – know, obviously, war reporting is extremely challenging. Uh, but you know, we also felt that it was a fairly hostile environment because the Chinese government was extremely angry about the way foreign reporters were covering the story. So we were always very careful to cover our tracks so that we weren't going to get any uh, Chinese locals into trouble. And so there were just a zillion different things that you had to worry about. Were you afraid at any time? There were times when we were extremely afraid. Uh, You know, we were shot at. Uh, My husband was on Tiananmen Square and was shot at. And our uh, residence was shot at, you know, with machine guns. So there were times where it was quite hairy. But believe me, it's nothing compared to what it's like being in a war zone in Iraq or Afghanistan. Your China reporting produced the book China Wakes, the struggle for the soul of a rising uh, power. There's a contrast in that book between the brutal, the corrupt, the cruel on the one hand and what seems to be your love for the country and the people. Um, How do those two things come together? Well, that's one of the contradictions. The other is between the politics and the economy, sort of the brutal politics and the rising economy. Uh, But that's China. China is just full of contradictions. It's the yin and the yang at the same time. It's such a vast country that is full of extremes and everything in between uh, that you will basically find anything you want to find in China. What, What would you say has been the most significant change since you were based there? It's obvious the economy has grown, but has there been something that you didn't expect that surprised you? Uh, Something that I didn't expect. 
I guess I hadn't I had underestimated how quickly the gap between the rich and the poor would occur. I mean, that gap is is really increasing. Um, I'd say corruption is terrible. Certainly at that time, one of the big questions was, would it become so corrupt like a Nigeria or just reasonably corrupt like a Mexico where things could still get done uh, despite the corruption? I think it is more like Mexico. People were always worried that it would become like Nigeria. Perhaps there are parts of China that are like Nigeria, but still, obviously, you know, things get done in a very, very big way. Um, but I'd say the other major um, challenge that uh, we also saw as an incipient trend but didn't know how bad it would get was is the environment. I think the environment is probably the most challenging because – Everybody has gaps between rich and poor. A lot of countries developing, particularly in the developing world, have that. But I think the environment as a whole uh, for China as a country is going to be one of the largest challenges that we don't yet have great solutions for. What about ethnic conflict? Ethnic conflict, you know, that is challenging. Um, certainly Tibet and the ethnic re- regions in, um, in the Xinjiang area uh, are going to be a challenge you know, I don't think they're uh, as big a challenge as the environment. Uh, they Unfortunately, there was a moment a year ago when they could have done a lot better in in sort of smoothing over th- that those tensions and trying to come to some sort of uh, understanding with uh, the Dalai Lama. But I think they have missed that moment, unfortunately. Maybe there will be another uh, moment like that to come along. Um, I wish they had taken that right around where the Olympics were. I really wish they had. I think they've missed that. After China, um, your next foreign stop was Japan. How did you experience the change from a rapidly developing society into what was then the economic powerhouse of Asia? Yes, it was the economic powerhouse of Asia that was basically on the precipice and about to (laughs) fall over. China was fascinating because there was a lot of change going on. uh, And it was still small so that people still didn't think it was relevant enough in the world, whereas Japan was definitely relevant. uh, But it was kind of um, about to decline. Uh, We didn't know how much it would. Uh, But in many ways, they were a study in contrasts and similarities uh, because Japan had become an economic powerhouse, the second largest uh, economy in the world. Uh, But it was very communist in the way it did things, the way things were getting done, much more communist than China was, uh, which although the government is communist, uh, it was very entrepreneurial uh, in the way it got things done. So it was very helpful to come from a communist country to go to a a country that actually functioned and and operated in a very communist way. Some people would say, are we talking about communism here? Are we talking about Confucianism, Um, which are quite different things, but uh, the the contrast is an interesting one. Your banking experience must have been particularly helpful in Japan. Absolutely. Absolutely, because I covered the banking crisis and the economic crisis in Japan, which – also then became very useful here because of what we just went through in the economic crisis. Were there some lessons that we should have learned from the Japanese experience that we didn't? We actually did learn a lot lot of lessons. And in fact, Ben Bernanke uh, was a very astute uh, student, so to speak, of what happened in Japan. 
and very mindful of the lessons that the Japanese faced when they were trying to go through it and, you know, making sure that, um, you know, they were a, it was a low interest rate environment and to avoid stagflation, which I think he has, is avoiding. We mentioned or talked briefly about um, your ethnicity assisting in your reporting in China. Was it a disadvantage in Japan? You know, I think it almost was a non-entity in in Japan. At first, I thought it was really going to be a problem because an Asian, being an Asian woman, not even being Japanese, but then being Chinese, I thought was going to hurt me. But frankly, uh, it really it didn't uh, hurt or help much at all. I suppose that people thought that I was a second generation Japanese at first before I explained to them. But I think that, you know, when you're reporting as a foreign reporter, the Japanese were very respectful of the institution and of, of foreign reporting and, and very, um, you know, mindful of you as a foreigner. Did your Chinese experience inform your Japanese reporting? I think so, absolutely, because we were very familiar with the uh, politics of the region, of course, and the tensions between China and Japan. We were very familiar with those. Uh, and I think that at the time, Japan was beginning to really develop its relationship, economic relationship with China. So having uh, being, been very familiar with China was very, very helpful in, in understanding that relationship and meeting with a lot of the Japanese who were interested in developing that relationship. The second book that you and Nick wrote, uh, Thunder from the East, Portrait of a Rising Asia, tackled more than Japan. Why did you not just stick with Japan? Why did you talk about Asia more generally? Well, because at the time, one of the pivotal things that was going on was the Asian financial crisis, of which Japan was a major uh, component. And it was just the entire region. We actually covered the entire region. Even though we were based in Japan, we actually covered the entire region. So for us, it was just the portfolio. And I think that Japan was in the middle of it and the largest player in the Asian financial crisis. But uh, to the degree that other countries actually learned more quickly than Japan did uh, in, and, and also recovered more quickly uh, from the financial crisis, you know, we think that the region itself is, you know, uh, larger than Japan. Now, it seems to me that, you know, we have the, these two uh, largest population countries in the world in China and India, and Japan is still something of a powerhouse. Um, sometimes people have the sense, I think, uh, in a university community that Americans don't really understand what's going on in Asia. I think to a degree that is true. Uh, there is so much going on in Asia, and the countries are so different from one another. I think that we don't appreciate enough the kind of tensions that exist within Asia uh, and that they care about their local uh, relationships. So it's not – everything is not just China-U.S. relations, U.S.-Japan relations. There is a uh, new kind of regionalism that is developing within Asia. And when you get out there, you, you see – that the Chinese care a lot about, you know, what kind of, of developing economic relations with the rest of, of Asia, particularly with India, and that there is a huge amount of dynamism going on there that the U.S. has kind of left out. And I think that Americans would do really well to understand it better because if the U.S. is going to continue to play a strong role in Asia, and I think it will, it's going to need a lot more Americans who understand uh, that region and the role that the U.S. can play in it. Let's take a break here and, and listen to some music. You've picked music by 
Taylor Swift. Why? Well, I think that I have to say that a lot of that influence comes from my kids. Today was a fairy tale. You were the prince. I used to be a damsel in distress. You took me by the hand and you picked me up at six. Today was a fairy tale. That was music by Taylor Swift, chosen by our guest on Profiles today, journalist and businesswoman Cheryl Wudun. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. A couple of your interesting reporting assignments um, in Asia took you to countries like North Korea and Burma. Um, Difficult? Frightening? Both. Absolutely. I have to say that North Korea was just one of a kind. Reporting in that country, it it really was a Potemkin visit. We really couldn't get underneath the surface. I mean, the most funniest thing I remember going to visit a family. We obviously had an interpreter with us who was our minder, sort of political minder, so to speak, and uh, really trying to explain North Korea from the government's point of view to us. So every question we asked, it was sort of like, well, this was the, uh, this is really how it's done in North Korea. He let us choose uh, the family that we would interview. We just sort of went to a building. We knocked on doors and said, we want this door. And we would go in there and we interviewed numerous families Every single family was almost exactly the same. So everyone had been brainwashed. We'd walk into the apartment. uh, They'd pull out a tray from the refrigerator, which, mind you, every single refrigerator was empty except for this tray with watermelon and tomatoes. I mean, it was just astonishing. And then they would sit us down, and we would ask the question. We almost got word for word the same answer. Uh, And every time we walked into into the room, there was a, a, so to speak, radio, which was really a – it was like a one-station radio, which was the North Korean government uh, radio station uh, with Kim Il-sung's you know, famous sayings and, and sort of adages for the day. And we remember walk, I remember walking down the street. We'd literally stopped just a couple of girls on the street. And we asked them a question. And in unison, they replied <laughs> with the same voice, the same wording. Clearly, everything had been memorized. So to have a 
government that could reach so deeply, uh, you know, into uh, the behavior of every single citizen. It was just astonishing to us. What about Burma? Burma was a very different matter. Um, in North Korea, we never really our safety. We did not feel that our safety was threatened. In Burma, every moment I felt threatened. I was scared. You know, you just didn't know what the military junta was going to do. Uh, people that I met there were always frightened. They never really could speak what they they felt. Uh, even the American officials there that I spoke to were always very careful with what they said and always said that it's hard for them to to know what was going on in that country. It's a really tough area. You came back to the United States, uh, I guess we can say at the beginning of this century, and you worked in a variety of tasks for the for the New York Times. How did you decide what to do or were these just choices offered you? Oh, well, you know, um, partly because of my business background, the publisher pulled me over to the corporate side of the uh, of the New York Times. So when we came back right away from Japan, I went over to uh, the circulation department of the New York Times. And that was uh, the beginning of, of really uh, when I understood what the challenge was. Here I thought as a reporter we were really challenged in getting the story. Uh, the challenge there was uh, remarkable in that every single day – the New York Times produces a new product and get it into the doors onto the doorsteps of you know a million plus uh, readers uh, by six a.m. five a.m. It's just a remarkable feat, and I also had the chance to work with a lot of students, university students, because my challenge was to you know introduce the New York Times to university students and to high school students. You also, um, I think, had something to do with uh, coordinating energy reporting, uh, economic reporting. Yes, that was another assignment that I had, which was really a a very interesting uh, time. Uh, The New York Times, I think, was one of the early newspapers to really focus on alternative energies. And uh, so, you know, in addition to covering the traditional energy, the oil and the gas and the fuels, the fossil fuels, we also really started uh, covering alternative energies clean energies which you know to you know even now is is a really growing area and it's it's going to be interesting to see how that develops and i guess you were on tv as well yes yes a number of different assignments including being the first new york times anchor and the last one too because although they did try and go into new platforms such as television uh, the new york times realized that television was a really tough business to be in. And getting in at such a late stage in the game was really tough. So they actually ended up divesting of the digital cable channel that they had bought into. And But now they're, they're doing video, but it's just on the web. Let's talk briefly about the future of the New York Times. Uh, there have been some interesting uh, conversations. Should the New York Times charge for um, putting material on the web? Should it not charge? Uh, what kind of competition is Rupert Murdoch and the Wall Street Journal going to provide? What's your take on the, all this? Oh, all very, very um, challenging and uncertain issues. The Times has announced that they are going to start going to a paid model on the web, and they are working that through, and they haven't announced anything. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they ultimately decide. It is a tough challenge. I mean, I think newspapers across the country are facing how do they get paid for their wonderful content. I mean, the content is great. You won't get any better content, and it is quality material that the reading public has just gotten used to getting for free, but they really um, are going to have to start 
uh, charging for it because if they want to maintain that quality, it takes it takes money. It takes money uh, to deliver such a quality product. And I do hope that the public understands that. Will it stay in print or will it eventually go entirely online? You know, I'm not sure that it will go entirely online. I think there still is an enormous, you know, demand for reading the the, the paper. Uh, the technology is not yet good enough to have, uh, you know, the computer replace uh, the print product, which is light and easy to carry. You can, you know, mash it up, fold it up in any old way and stick it into your bag. I think that's just so far right now in our current future, it's not going to go away. But, of course, the online um, medium will continue to expand rapidly. And who knows what Apple's new iPad will look like and how it will take off. Um, Maybe that will be uh, an antidote that will fill a great need. Because you can certainly do everything with um, the iPad or or with Kindle uh, that you can do with a newspaper except mash it up. (laughs) Right. You went back to banking with uh, with Goldman Sachs. Um, what, what led you to do that? Well, a lot of it was that, um, uh, first of all, I w- I've always been very interested in banking and, and investing. And, you know, I was very lucky to be given the opportunity to work and to go back into banking and jumped on that. It was, you know, a way that, um, you know, uh, Nick and I could diversify a little bit. Uh, I love the Times. I had a great uh, run at the Times, and I still have a lot of friends there. And and you know, just saw a few of them recently, and I really respect the newspaper, and am very hopeful that it will do ex- exceedingly well in the future as well. Uh, but it's also really nice to be back into banking and to uh, get, keep a pulse on some of the new things that are going on uh, in the entrepreneurial world. I'm now at a smaller investment banking boutique called Mid Market Securities, and uh, we really focus on small and middle, medium sized companies. And that's just a great way to sort of get a pulse on the country to find out what's new going on. You know, what are what are people doing? How are they building companies? It's just really interesting. Would you and Nick like to report from abroad again? He certainly does. He makes trips abroad in terms of you mean living abroad yes, probably. Yes. We thought about that. Um, we thought about uh, going to China. I think that right now partly because our kids are – Firmly entrenched in their in their schools and uh, uh, with their friends, I think that might be a little bit difficult. Your most recent book, which you've already mentioned, "Half the Sky: um, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Worldwide," came out in the fall of two thousand nine. It seems to me, in comparing it to the other books, it's less like journalism and more a call to action. Is that a fair analysis? That is very fair. And, you know, it was hard for us as journalists to um, move into that sphere because, as you know, uh, as journalists, we are sort of very well trained to be objective, never to take sides, you know, listen uh, to both sides and then be very balanced in the reporting. And so it took a long time for us to feel comfortable coming out and saying, well, this has to be changed. Uh, Nick um, now is a columnist, so he's allowed to take stands. And again, and when he first started, it was very hard for him to sort of say, wait, I can come out and ask people to do something. Or I can say, you know, this is right, this is wrong. But, you know, we finally did it in Half the Sky. And we're finding that, you know, being able to come out and say, this is wrong. You know, the major premise of the book is that we think the moral challenge of this century is the brutality that so many women around the world face because of their gender. 
Uh, and we really think in the same way that the slavery, anti-slavery movement, the slavery was the cause of the 19th century uh, and totalitarianism cause of the 20th century. We think that gender inequity is the cause of this century. Uh, to be able to say that, you know, it really has uh, created an enormous response. You indicated earlier that the roots of this book came from the the China experience. How did you conceptualize the book as a whole? How did you plan it? Oh, well, you know, it's it's been a long time in the making and shaping, I should say. Uh, The actual planning came down to sort of really nuts and bolts of plotting out the characters and the chapters and, you you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of it all. But Uh, In terms of the conceptualization, that took a long time because it actually took a long time for us to figure out that this wasn't just in China, that this was going on in India, but then what were the similarities, uh, then what was going on in Africa, and how do you put that together? So that took a long time, just sort of uh, lots of discussions, lots of sort of teasing out, you know, threads that were going on uh, throughout the world. And so the result is half the sky. How do you go about writing it? Is it Nick writes one chapter, you write another chapter, you share paragraphs, you just throw it into a computer and randomly put the paragraphs together? <laughs> it's more like the end, the last, the, your last suggestion. We did not uh, – in our previous books, we alternated chapters and we each took chapters. This one was a little bit different because you really had to sort of throw it into the mesh and then it gets all you know mixed up and and there's, a, there's an output. Um, Partly because, you know, our lives had also changed. I was no longer an actual journalist, so to speak. And a lot of it was, uh, it was a more difficult topic, frankly. There was a lot of harsh material. Uh, And one of the challenges we had was, you know, first of all, what was our conclusion going to be? And, you know, who was our audience? And, you know, how are we going to reach them? So, you know, a lot of it was really, you know, sitting down to think about how do we plot this out? How do we chart this out in a way that is going to be readable, going to be accessible to ordinary Americans? We were not going to just, you know, sort of preach to the choir. We wanted to reach ordinary uh, students at Indiana University, you know, on Main Street uh, in New York City. And so, you know, that's what, what we set ourselves out to do. Don't you fear that you might miss the policymakers with that kind of approach, people who could really uh, accomplish change? Well, you know what? Um, it's not just the policymakers who accomplish change. It really is everyone. And frankly, it's um, the ordinary Americans who have the power to not only make a difference but also hold their politicians' feet to the fire. In many ways, it's more in the hands of ordinary Americans than it is in the policymakers. Uh, the policymakers listen to their constituents. So if their constituents aren't basically, you know, yelling at their politicians, we need you to change, we need you to focus on this, then they're not going to really move. How did you go about reporting the book? As I mentioned, it is a result of many different, um, a number of different years. You know, it's, it's, you know, a lot of the stuff, there's a lot of stuff being going, that's going on here in, in the U.S., uh, while we do have a lot of reporting of people uh, around the world in the developing countries, stories of women uh, who have, uh, you know, um, confronted enormous um, changes and obstacles in their lives and yet come through, we were amazed to find how many Americans are already in the middle of this helping out. I mean, we we found uh, students 
and teachers who were already in the middle of projects that they were developing, you know, in Asia to try and help uh, fellow students in the local countries. There were there were organizations that are already trying to deliver healthcare services in Africa. There is so much that people here that Americans are doing already to help. What we found we were doing is really bringing those all together in one place so that people could read about it. Maybe you could describe for our listeners what you found to be the most moving story in the book. Well, there are a couple of of, of stories that I'd say. Um, we really focus on sex trafficking, on maternal mortality, and on violence against women. And um, one of the more uh, moving stories is about sex trafficking. Uh, my husband, actually, when we were based in Japan, made one of his first trips to Cambodia. And he ended up uh, buying two uh, sex workers there uh, who basically were enslaved in the brothels that they were forced to work in. And he bought two of them. He got receipts for buying these two human beings. When you can get receipts for buying human beings, that's really a disgrace. And we write about them, stray mom and stray net, lots of ups and downs. But the upshot of it is, is that you can help people. And we did help them. Uh, and um, it was just an incredibly moving uh, story. What did you find uh, the most difficult part of the book to write? I'd say that was it. Um, just seeing how these women were enslaved in these brothels. I mean, these people, these girls, really girls, they're 13 or 14 years old when a lot of them are kidnapped from their homes, transported to the brothels, forced to work as sex workers and not get paid a dime Often they're not even given enough food because the brothel owners don't want them to get fat. These poor girls um, often are going to die of AIDS, and it's just just so tragic. And yet what was also very inspiring is that there are local institutions that are developing, local groups developing to, uh, to try and help these girls, save them, rescue them from the brothels. And so to see this courage in the face of that sort of tragic uh, those those kind of tragedies was really inspiring. One of the controversial um, proposals in, in the book, I think, is um, the suggestion that religious groups and secular groups will have to work together uh, in, in assistance. Uh, how do you respond to the criticisms that have been made of this? Well, I'm not really sure what criticism you're talking about. I don't think anybody has, has criticized. In fact, people have supported um, the concept that they work together, secular and religious work together, because, you know, there is common ground. I mean, there are, you know, in some places in Africa, 95% of health care delivery is done through churches, through the church. It's just really gratifying to see that. I mean, they put their money where their mouth is. I mean, they really, you know, the priests out there, the ministers, the, you know, the nuns out there, they are actually living and breathing helping people in those areas. It's really inspiring. At the same time, you have liberal groups who are saying, well, let's support you know, legal rights in this particular area, and they should. But you know what? If they work together, if they organize, they could be so much more effective. I think some of the criticism has been um, if some projects are funded by, say, the U.S. government, should they be funding religious groups? I think that's where... Right. If they are delivering... Um, effective outcomes, you know, it, it shouldn't matter uh, what denomination uh, people are, come from or believe in, because frankly, there's too much focus on 
the religious or non-religious, you know, background of people. And what happens then is that the actual impoverished people are getting neglected. I mean, there are there is maternal mortality there at just an incredibly high rate. In Niger, for instance, one in seven women can expect to die in childbirth. And that should be the focus, regardless of whether it's the healthcare services are delivered by nuns or, you know, by U.S. Um, AID. It should get delivered. What's the next book project? Well, we really haven't thought about that. We are so focused on Half the Sky Still. We're just delighted by the response. And there's going to be a documentary series that is built up on uh, Half the Sky. Um, Right now we're working with PBS. There's going to be an online social action campaign that will have sort of gaming elements um, in it to reach ordinary Americans because uh, we really think that ordinary Americans can make a difference. And we do hope that they will tune into Half the Sky online. There certainly was an interesting response. I understand that Rupert Murdoch came to one of the parties that that helped promote the book. Thank you. You have really good uh, insight. That brings us to the conclusion of this conversation. Our guest today has been author and businesswoman Cheryl Wu Dunn. Cheryl, thanks for visiting with us. Thanks very much, Owen. It was a delight to be here. For WFIU, I'm Owen Johnson. Do you hear me talking to you? Across the water, across the deep blue ocean, under the open sky, oh my, baby, I'm trying. Boy, I hear you in my dreams, I feel you whisper across the sea, I keep you with me in my heart, you make it easier when life gets hard. I'm in love with my best friend Lucky to have been where I have been Lucky to be coming home The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.